0: Carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Remember, we talked about this passage last week, but then it goes on in verse 18. It says, be filled with the Spirit, in verse 18, and then in 21, it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, as to your own husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So yesterday, I took my daughter to the Strand bookstore. Anybody love the Strand bookstore? It's my favorite place in all of New York City other than right here. Um, And I love the Strand bookstore, and so I took my daughter. My daughter loves to read, so... We said, we're bored. Let's go to the Strand. So we went to the Strand bookstore, and we were looking around buying Christmas presents for the family. And, uh, you know, they have books, 18 miles of books, but they also have, like, merchandise and apparel. And one of the things they sell is they have a red baseball cap, and in big block white letters, it said, Make America Read Again. <laughs> All right? My wife did, or My daughter didn't get it. She was like, what does this mean? But I understood it, right? What's going on? The Strand took a commonly well-known, ubiquitous cultural slogan. They twisted it just a little bit to make a point and to sell a product. And their point is, make a mer- a mer- we should read, you know? But they took something we all know and they twisted it just a little bit. It makes us laugh and it makes us think about something else, right? And in the text that I just read, the Apostle Paul is sort of doing the same thing. So he's taking a commonly recognized piece of literature from Aristotle, and he's reworking it to make a greater point. See, Paul didn't write the letter to the Ephesians in a vacuum. He was writing to a specific culture in a specific time in a specific place. And the context of the church in Ephesus in the first century was it was a Greco-Roman society to a predominantly Jewish group of people. A lot going on there. <laughs> Diverse uh, city. And at that time, in pretty much all the cultures, Greek culture, Roman culture, and Jewish culture, marriage was understood very differently than we understand it today. Marriages at that time, they were, there was no such thing as dating at that time. Uh, marriages were arranged by the families. And the decision of who to marry was not based on romance, or love, or attraction, or lust, or any of those things, but on economics, wealth, family, status, and childbearing. So marriage was a social, it was a political transaction where two families, usually of similar status, would come together, they would combine their wealth, they would produce children, and in the hopes that they could elevate them to another class within the next generation. Women at this time were considered to be property of their husbands. They were just higher than the slaves in the household when it comes to their rights and their status within the family. They were expected to be sexually faithful to their husbands while men were permitted to sleep with whomever they desired. Men in this time, in most marriages, culturally, had legal allowance to abuse their wives if their wives were insubordinate. And they could divorce them if their wives were unable to bear children. Now, that was the context of first century Ephesus. Now, where did they get that? 300 years earlier, Aristotle, before Ephesians was written, Aristotle wrote his famous work on politics. If you read Nicomachean Ethics in your uh, college, you know, Philosophy 101 class, politics was his follow-up on how to apply his ethics to life. And at the end of politics, uh, Aristotle outlined in what's called the Household Codes, uh, how Wives, children, slaves, and then the heads of the home should behave. And so he addresses wives first, then husbands, then children, then parents, then slaves, then masters. Aristotle's household codes, they promoted and supported this highly unjust vision for marriage and family. And Aristotle's vision was passed down and was accepted by cultures for centuries after him and was certainly accepted by the culture in Ephesus. And I read Aristotle this week I mean, he talks as if women were truly inferior or less human. Okay? And so everybody in Ephesus, especially the, Greek, the Greeks in Ephesus, they would have been familiar with Aristotle's household codes. And so when Paul writes, Men, love, or women, submit to your husbands. Men, love your wives. Children. When he does this, they're immediately thinking Aristotle. But Paul speaks nothing of inferiority and insubordination, but rather he speaks of equality and he brings Jesus into the mix. So much like I see a hat and I see Make America Read Again and I chuckle, they would have heard Paul inserting Christ into these household codes and inserting equality into the household codes and it would have blown their minds. The husbands would have heard that and their heads would have exploded. They would have been like... Like, submit to my wife out of reverence for Christ. They would have heard, like, honor and equal, like, love my wife. They're my property. Like, it would have blown their minds. And so, if you think like Jesus, you know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard it said, but I say unto you, this is what Paul's doing. You've heard Aristotle say that men are the center of the family, but I say to you, Christ is the center of the family. The husband submits to Christ, first and foremost. And so, Paul brings Jesus into the mix and he, he uses the gospel of Christ to provide a spiritual commentary on the household codes out of Aristotle. Again, let me say this. Paul takes the man out of the center of the home and places Christ in his place. You see, in Christian marriages, the home is no longer ruled sovereignly and solely by the husband. It is ruled by the grace of Jesus. See, that was the Christian vision for marriage in the first century, and you bet it blew their minds and was incredibly controversial. And it, now, we read this passage 2,000 years later, and we're shocked, and it's controversial, but for altogether different reasons, right? So in our culture, marriage is not seen as political or social primarily. It's primarily an emotional transaction. We don't primarily enter into marriage for tribal or political reasons, but we choose spouses based on how they make us feel. And so we value romance and we value sexual passion and energy and lust and attraction as the primary motivators for who we choose to marry and why we enter into marriage. So when this passage talks about submission and self-sacrifice, it rubs like sandpaper against our cultural view of marriage. Because we're like, submit? to Who? No. Marriage is about me and having my needs met. Not me laying my needs down for the sake of someone else to meet their needs. You see, this passage... It's also really difficult to read in our culture because we've seen people abuse this passage horrifically. What many people will do is they'll take the line, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, they'll rip it out of context, and then they'll interpret it apart from the whole of Ephesians. Remember what Ephesians is about. Ephesians is about you have been saved by the grace of Jesus, you've been forgiven, you've been adopted into the family of God, and in this family... Jew and Gentile are equal. Men and women are equal. All are together into this new family. And so people will take this passage out of its context and then interpret it apart from the whole of Ephesians. And so people will use a passage like this to dominate and belittle their wives and women in general. And they'll rob women of their agency and they'll crush their spirit. And some will use this passage to encourage women to stay in abusive relationships. If you're in an abusive relationship, get help, and get out. Very clearly, I want to say that. But what I want you to see is that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus gets around women, they're lifted up, not pushed down. Furthermore, every single command of Jesus leads us away from the temptation to dominate others for our own sake and toward laying ourselves down for the sake of others. So I say all those things, but I also say... That women who have a desire to honor the Scriptures will indeed have to grapple with what it means to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. But men also will have to grapple with what it means to submit to their wives out of reverence for Christ and to love our wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So that was a long introduction. I I hope it's not a long sermon, but we'll see, you know. Uh, So let's get into the text. Last week, we looked at verses 18 through 21 where Paul says this is what a spirit-filled life looks like for all Christians, men and women. And it ended with verse 21, which said, everyone submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And all through Ephesians, Paul's been applying that to the church. We all submit to one another. And then now he pivots and he starts applying it to relationships. And what we need to know as we read this passage, everything Paul will say about marriage and family in the following paragraphs is framed by verse 21. So in all Christian relationships, both men and women are called to mutually submit to one another out of reverence for Jesus. And in fact, there were no paragraph breaks in the original Greek. So we read uh, verse 21, and then there's a paragraph break in a new section, and then it says, "'Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord.'" In the original Greek, there weren't paragraph breaks. That's our translators, and usually they do a good job making paragraph breaks because it helps us understand things, but here it messes up the translation because it was actually one long sentence. And so when we read in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands, there's actually no verb in that sentence. It does not say wives submit to your husbands. What they do is they actually pull the verb from verse 21 down. So the way it should read is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ Wives, as to your husbands, okay? So we read wives submit, and we, it gets really harsh. But Paul is saying we're all submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, long introduction, let's get into the text. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So there's two verbs here that are given as commands to the, to the wife. Submit and respect. Submit is a scary word, isn't it? Uh, we think of handmaid's tale. Anybody thinking of that right now when you're like, wives, submit to your husbands? Uh, Ephesians 5 is not talking about handmaid's tale. It's talking about Jesus and the church. But to submit... It's a military term, which means to align yourself underneath somebody's leadership. So it's to entrust yourself fully to the leadership of someone else. And men are called, and we'll see this in a moment, to lead their wives, not by domination, not by rule and sovereignty, and this is how it's going to be, but men are called to lead. Men are called to be leaders of their home, not through force, though, but by serving. And so submission, then, is to allow your husbands to serve you. And But that's actually, that sounds easy, doesn't it? But it implies trusting yourself fully to another person. To trust that that person has your, only your well-being and your flourishing in mind. And to submit to someone's love is to make yourself vulnerable enough to let them love you and make decisions with you and for you. And to submit to your husband, women, is to let him love you. That sounds easy, but in my experience as a pastor and counseling couples, it's really hard. Because in our lifetimes, we all accumulate experiences where we've entrusted ourselves to someone and they've rejected us. We've all, it could be a parent. It could be a romantic relationship. It could be a child. We've all had, it could be a friend. We've all had experiences where we've entrusted ourselves to someone that, we, that was supposed to nourish us. And they rejected us. And so what happens is we develop defense mechanisms in our heart and in our actions. And so what happens is many of us, we enter into marriage later in our lives with our guards up. And our, we have walls built up to protect ourselves, to keep ourselves from being rejected, and to keep ourselves from getting hurt. And so what happens is in relationships is we will hold parts of ourselves back. And we don't let our spouses all the way in to the most tender places. Because we're afraid that if we, if we give them all of us, they could reject us. And that could be pain again. And so submit, to submit wives like Jesus and to Jesus is to let your husband love you. I'm not going to give practical examples of how that works in your marriage because every marriage is different. But it just means to let them into those places that you're afraid to let him into. In verse 33, it also says that Christian women should respect or honor their husbands. Now, I know that there's a stereotype of men as having like bravado and being cocky and all of that. And in fact, I saw a popular meme a few weeks ago that was kind of being passed around social media. And it was a funny prayer. And it said, this woman said, God, give me the ability to seize the day with the unearned confidence of a mediocre white male. That's funny, right? That's funny. Like, give me, give, me the, give me the ability to seize the day with the unearned confidence of a mediocre white male. That's funny. I'm not, like, that's funny. But let me tell you, as a mediocre white male, <laughs> truly, let me in, let me let you into my heart. Sometimes the unearned confidence that I may project or we may project and I don't just speak for white men, but all men and not just mediocre men, but even very amazing men. Most men I know behind the facade is actually a lot of insecurity. A lot of men, I I counsel men, talk to men, small groups with men, teach the Bible with men. Like most men behind all of the bravado and the cockiness and just the trying to put on a strong face, most of us, are carrying loads of insecurity, and a godly wife who is a gift to her husband is a woman who respects her husband and honors him. A godly wife is a woman who believes in her husband, who, a, a woman who has a vision for what her husband can be and calls her husband to live up to that, not by insulting him, but by lifting him up. Nathaniel Hawthorne the classic author, was once laid off from his job at a custom house. And so he was walking home, and he was just like like most men would be, like if you get fired from your job, you're walking home going, how am I going to tell my wife? And he was just terrified of telling his wife, and he was depressed and ashamed and insecure. And he walks in the door, and his wife says, what's going on? And he says, well, I lost my job today. And he tells her the story, and she replied, Nathaniel, this is great news. He's like, What? She says, "Now you can spend a year finishing your book," and he said, "Well, what do you think we're going to live on while I'm writing it?" And she opened a drawer. This is a true story. She opened a drawer, pulled out an envelope, and it had a substantial amount of money in it. And he said, "Where on earth did you get that?" And she said, "Nathaniel, I've always known you were a man of genius." And I knew that someday you would write a masterpiece. So every week, out of the money that you gave me for housekeeping and for items at the store, I saved a little bit and a little bit. And here's enough to last us for the whole year. And from her trust and her confidence in her husband came one of the great novels of American literature, The Scarlet Letter. You see, the respect of a wife brought something out of him that nobody else saw. He didn't even see it in himself and she didn't insult him to lift him up, but rather she lifted him up to lift him up. So, wives, be your husband's chief encourager and chief respecter. Listen, I don't know who the model husband is in our congregation. I don't know who lives out this, the, the, all the commands for a husband really well, but I know who lives out these things for a woman, and it's my wife. Listen, one of the ways she lifts me up is she will take, I'll do a hundred things wrong, and she'll take the one thing that I do well, and she'll, she'll encourage me like crazy with it. And so she'll post on social media. One of the things, one of my love languages is public praise. Like, you can give me a gift, I'll say thank you, but if you really want to just bless me, just praise me publicly. I, that's just how God made me. I know it sounds egotistical, but that's just how God wired me. And my wife knows this, and you'll see throughout the years, she'll make a post on, on social media, and it'll just be a post giving me honor that I don't deserve. Or if my friends are over, if I'm around my friends, my wife will pick one thing that I've done really kind and generous to her, and she will praise me in front of my friends. Now, I know all the thousand things I do wrong as a husband, but when she encourages me on those small things, what it does is it inspires me to live up to the man that she's got a vision of me being. Wives, be an encourager of your husbands. Husbands, Remember, everything is framed by verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife, Loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. So, earlier when Paul was talking to the women, he said that husbands are the head of the home, and we're like, what in the world? This is 2021. In fact, my, our insurance company has listed me as the head of the household on our insurance policy. And so um, my wife is actually not only the head of the household can make changes. So my wife will call our insurance company and be like, hey, I need to make changes on our insurance policy for you know, our daughter or whatever. And they're like, you cannot do that we need to speak to your husband and every time we're like this is 2021 we're like why can't he change our insurance policy that seems so weird to our ears doesn't it head of household head of the home that's frustrating to modern ears because we're aware of power dynamics and abuse and equality and all of that but the bible does say that the man is the head of the home that's what it says in the text But the word head is connected to Jesus. So for the husband to be the head of the home then is to be like Jesus. It's not a role connected to power, but a role connected to servanthood. So whatever head means, and Paul later says marriage is a mystery, so I'm going to punt there and be like, it's mysterious. I don't know, okay? So don't email me. that. Whatever it means, it doesn't negate the fact that to your wife, you are her Christian brother, and her servant first, okay? And everything that Paul says to us following that, we must recognize that we are a servant. It's, this is not a position of power, it's a position of servanthood. Paul says this to men. He says, give yourself up for your wives just as Jesus did for you. That is not only a hard command, that's an impossible command. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is difficult, Jesus died for the sins of other people. He bore the burdens of those who did not respect him. He bore the burdens of those who mistreated him. He took responsibility for sins that were not even his fault. There was no ego, there was no selfishness to be found in Jesus. But men, that's how we're to love our wives. We put to death the ego. We put to death the desire to always be right. We put to death the sense of entitlement that we have in the home. We put to death ourselves, and we lay ourselves down for the sake of our wives. We lay aside our glory so that our wives can be elevated. See, our instinct is to be selfish and entitled. But the way of Jesus is to lay those instincts down and pick up the instincts of Jesus, which is to lay yourself down. Even when, even when you're right. Men, when you marry a woman, the question is not, how can this woman meet my needs? The question is, how can I meet this woman's needs for the rest of my life? See, husbands, when there's a fight, you have to be the first to step down. When there is a fight, you must be the first to apologize. You must be the first to lead in repentance and in grace. That's what it means to be the head of a home like Jesus. It is to be like Jesus, which is laying yourself down. Paul also says that the reason we do this is so that our wife will be sanctified and presented with splendor. You see, and then he, he says, through the washing of the water of the word. I mean, he's, he's making a parallel to Jesus. Jesus, through the cross and the resurrection. What has Jesus done for us? Jesus, through his, de- his life, death, and resurrection, He prepared the way for us to have a relationship with God. You see, the son laid down his life so that we could know the father. Men, if you are married, your calling as a husband is this. You are to make every preparation within your power for your wife to grow in her relationship with God. And you are called to remove every obstacle that might hinder her from knowing more of God. You are called to daily lay your life down so that she can live hers. Listen, and some men hear this, and this overwhelms them. And I've heard many people preach this passage, and they say, men, this means that you need to make more money than your wife. You need to be the financial provider. You need to be smarter than your wife. You need to know more Bible. You need to teach her the Bible. Listen, my wife knows more Bible than me. And 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 listen, many of you guys, your wife makes more money than you. It's okay. You're not called to be better than your wife. That's not what it means to lead and to prepare the way for your wife to know God. You're, you don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be better. All this is asking is it means that your wives must thrive spiritually because of you, not in spite of you. Your calling as a husband is to see the spiritual potential in your wife and make every effort to help her reach that potential. And men, I know in this room tonight, if you have the Holy Spirit within you, as you hear these words, I know that you're thinking, this is what I want more than anything. Unless the Holy Spirit has left the room and he has not, I know you men are going, this is what I desire. I want to be this for my wife. And you may feel so inadequate to this calling. You may be thinking of all your failures right now. You may be thinking of all the ways you've never done this or you never could do this. But Christ in you, the hope of glory, is your example, and he is your strength. Men, if you fix your eyes on Jesus day by day, you can love your wives in this way. Paul says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Paul says, This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul essentially says, I don't know how to explain it, but this whole thing, it points to Jesus. See, Christian husband, Christian wife, mutually laying down your lives for the sake of the other so that the other can reach their full potential as a follower of Jesus. That is the vision of marriage in the Scriptures. Two parties laying themselves down for the sake of one another. And Paul says this refers to Christ in the church. What does Jesus do for the church? He lays his life down so that we could know God. What does the church do? We lay ourselves down and give ourselves to Jesus so that Jesus could be lifted high in our lives. See, it's all about Christ laid down his life for us. We lay down our life for Christ. In marriage, we lay down our lives for one another. And listen, that is a picture of the gospel. But also, it's a marriage ideal for Christians. Paul is writing to Christian husbands and Christian wives. And so I know that not all marriages fit this ideal. The Bible is well aware that not all marriages fit this ideal. First Peter, for example, Peter says he makes a point to talk to women who are married to unbelievers. See, the Bible recognizes that not all marriages are ideal, meet the the biblical ideal. And the purpose of this passage is not to provide a formula for a happy marriage or to shame those in less than ideal marriages. The purpose of this passage is to show us that marriage is intended above all else to be a witness to Christ and his church. It's a mystery, Paul says, and it's profound. Wives love and honor their husbands in the way that the church loves and honors Jesus. And husbands love and honor their wives by giving themselves up in the same way that Jesus gave himself up for the church. You see, just like when we take communion, it's not about the meal. Nobody's walking away full. From the communion bread and the and the cracker nobody's like man that was a great dinner the point of the Lord's Supper is not supper it's the Lord and it points to Jesus and marriage, the point of marriage is not marriage itself it's to point to something greater it's to point to Jesus and the church and so I just want to say that if you're here and you're single and you want to be married And this is a hard passage for you to hear because it's stirring up unmet desires in your life. I just want to say I can't imagine how hard the waiting is. But I want you to know that marriage is not the foundation for a fulfilled life. Jesus is. Married people can tell you that. Marriage is not the foundation for a fulfilled life. Jesus is. Jesus was never married. And he lived the abundant life. Paul, who wrote this passage, was never married. And yet he lived a full life. You see, the point of marriage is not marriage. Marriage points to Jesus. Marriage will never satisfy you like Jesus, but marriage points you to Jesus. And I want you to know, single people, is that even in your waiting, your desire for marriage can strengthen you into the image of Jesus in the same way that actual marriage does. See, in this passage, we're talking about how marriage actually forms us more like, it calls us to live more like Jesus. You don't have to be married to strive to live like Jesus. You don't have to be married to become a person who honors and respects and encourages those around you. And you don't have to become married to be the type of person who lays your life down for the sake of others. You don't need a spouse to grow into this type of person. You just need a spirit-filled heart ready to pursue the way of Jesus. And Jesus will honor that. If you are divorced, or maybe you're in a difficult marriage here, or perhaps you're widowed, Perhaps you hear this and you think, "Boy, I have lived and I've failed in every way to live this out." Maybe you're divorced and maybe you feel like it was your fault, and you're just you're hearing this passage and you're going, "I did not do any of this." There is grace for you. You can be forgiven. And you can even let your failures remind you of the grace of Christ who died for us while we were yet sinners. Perhaps you are or you were in a marriage where you have given all of yourself To someone, but nothing was or has been given in return. And that's painful. And you go, I'm doing what it says for me to do, but they're not doing it back. That is painful. But I want to speak to you this afternoon and say that it is here where you are joining with Christ's sufferings. And the scriptures say that when you join Christ in his sufferings, you are experiencing a blessing. It may not feel like a blessing but you are experiencing more of Jesus. Because listen, when we come to Jesus, the church, his bride, what do we have to offer Jesus? (laughs) Nothing. It's just like every sin we commit, it's like adultery all over again. We don't give much back to Jesus in the relationship, but he continues to pour himself out for us. And so even as you pour yourself out for a spouse who may not reciprocate it, remember that you are lining up under the way of Jesus as you do that. Listen, your pain, while it is incredibly painful, Jesus knows and he sees it because he's experienced it. And he has promised that one day he will wipe away your tears. Wives, love your husbands and respect your husbands in a way that honors and builds him up as the church builds up the name of Jesus. Husbands, love your wives and give yourself up for her as Christ did for you. That is the will of God for your life.